All right, if you'll go back to that text there in Revelation chapter number 3, we're going to be dealing tonight with the church of the Laodiceans. The church of the Laodiceans. This is an interesting final letter because in all the other churches, when the Lord has been addressing these churches, He has stated them as the church in Philadelphia, the church in Sardis, the church at Ephesus. And in this particular letter, he addresses them as a group of people, the Laodiceans. Uh, I don't know if there's deep significance in that. Uh, however, I did find it quite interesting that he referred to them in a different way than he has the previous six letters. Of course, this final letter, the, the church of Laodicea in this letter, is probably one of the more well-known of the uh, letters. Uh, we're probably familiar with the sin of the church of Laodicea. Uh, maybe we're unaware of just how far removed from what God wanted for them they actually were. Uh, they truly, if we were to kind of set it out on a journey here, they had truly forgotten uh, Christ's admonition that no man can serve two masters. That's exactly what Laodicea was trying to do. They were trying to serve two masters. There are references in this passage about them being rich. Uh, there are words and expressions in here, not only about them being rich, uh, rich but the Lord actually saying, you're actually poor. Uh, they make note of the fact that God says you have need of nothing. You are completely satisfied in what you have at this particular moment. Uh, but we also know that when the Lord taught about you cannot serve two masters in Matthew 6, 24, of all the churches in these seven letters, Laodicea is, only one for, is, is the only one for which Christ has absolutely, positively no commendation or praise whatsoever. He says nothing praiseworthy about them. Uh, they are described as lukewarm people. Uh, lukewarm is a, it's a, it's a word that is uh, a powerful word, uh, but it is also a word that was very relevant. Uh, Laodicea uh, was situated near a hot springs, and near that hot springs uh, there was water. But of course, as that water was removed from the springs and as the water was set aside, uh, that water would grow lukewarm. It would not remain hot and it would stay in a lukewarm condition or eventually uh, certainly would go cold. Uh, so the citizens would have understood what he meant by lukewarm. And so Jesus uses this terminology of lukewarm and he expresses to them that because of this lukewarmness that he will spew them from his mouth. Uh, that certainly, that lukewarm water uh, that is, is uh, disgusting to the taste, it's disgusting to the palate, uh, that's what's at the heart of this. Uh, Laodicea is a church that he has absolutely no praise to give. But there is an interesting phrase that he makes in verse 19. He says, as many as I love. The one element of the church of Laodicea, as we have to keep in mind, is there were those there who were his. Uh, even though the church of Laodicea was one of the seven churches, it was still one of the candlesticks. It was still one of the churches. And he does say, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. 
Remember, the chasing of the Lord is not as, as meant, meant to hurt us. It is meant to help us. It is meant to bring us back to the state in which we are intended to be. He chastens those he loves. He's chastening this church. He's not giving up. He's not removing them. He's not saying, I'm done with you. But he is saying, I want you to repent. Now, there's really three main headings we're going to look at tonight. In verses 14 through 17, we're going to look specifically at the charge of lukewarmness. What went into that charge that the Lord Jesus charges this church with? The charge of lukewarmness. In verses 18 through 19, we'll consider the heading, the counsel of love. Uh, God's counsel, when he counsels his people, is always loving counsel. And it's proper counsel. It's counsel we should heed. It's counsel that we should never ignore. And then a third heading will be verses 20 through 22, which is the call to life. So when we approach this particular church, we have to be very careful that we don't view this church as the church that Christ totally wrote off, that he gave up on, and he simply said, I've spewed you out, and there is absolutely no hope. No, the reality is he says that I will spew thee out of my mouth. In other words, there is this opportunity to repent. There is this opportunity to be what you are created to be, to be what you are called to be. And so there is not a giving up by the Lord, but there certainly is a call to repent. You'll notice there that in verse 14, it says, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write these things, saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Laodicea was a great and a very rich city. Uh, no doubt the gospel was preached there. The gospel as it was preached, this church was planted as a result of gospel preaching. This was a church plant, if you will. It was a church that was planted in the faith. Uh, it was a functioning church. It was planted properly by the order of the gospel. So this church is, in fact, a church. But the Lord says, these things saith the amen. Now, when we see Jesus refer to himself as the amen, this is a, a recognition of his unchangeableness, if I can use that word. He's unchangeable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when he says these things right, says the amen. Uh, when we say amen at the end of a prayer and we say it together, we're saying that not just to mark the end of a prayer, but we're saying that as a way of agreeing. We agree with what's been said. We agree with what's been prayed about. It is an agreement. But in this sense, Jesus is saying this is the amen that is saying this. Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and the same forever, Hebrews 13, 8. Christ is also the very amen or the very fulfillment of all the promises of God. He continues to identify himself not only as the amen, but he also identifies himself as the faithful and true witness. Christ is always faithful and he's always true. What he says, he will perform. He only speaks truth. He never makes a mistake in judgment. He never misconstrues a situation. He never misjudges what he actually sees. 
So if Jesus brings a claim against these churches, what he's actually saying is actually true. He is faithful. He is true. But it's interesting. He goes on and he says he's also the beginning of the creation of God. We know that in Colossians 1.15, the Bible tells us that Christ is the firstborn of every creature. He is the firstborn among the many brethren. And he is therefore preeminent in all things. Christ is announcing very clearly who he is. He's announcing very clearly not only about his faithfulness and his truthfulness, but about his unchangeableness and that he is to have the preeminence. We talk often at our church about the preeminence of Christ, how this is not our church. This is, does not belong to us. Uh, this belongs to Christ as our head. And he has every right as he sees fit to remove the candlestick. If our church is not what it's supposed to be and he decides to remove it, uh, we don't grant him permission. He can remove it at any moment. But we are to acknowledge him as the preeminent one. What Christ says is what we ought to follow. He is the firstborn. In verse 15, which is very similar to what he's been saying, he says, I know thy works. Uh, Christ always knows uh, what we have done, good and bad. Now, he does not commend them for any good work. Now, this is not to say that when this church was planted that there were not good works. But remember, we've learned some of these churches that were relying on their past. This is what we used to be. This is what we used to do. Uh, there really is no glory in what a church used to be. There's no glory in what a church used to do. Uh, people talk off often about, hey, I remember uh, back in my day, anytime a conversation begins with back in my day, they're getting ready to, to tell you about something when it was better or when it was good. Uh, sometimes time has a way of diluting our memory, and our memory sometimes isn't so clear that things were not always as good as we thought they were. The good old days, in some cases, were not so good. But he's talking in the present tense. He says, I know thy works. And he identifies these works, and he says, your works are neither cold or hot. I would thou were cold or hot. Now, Christ had tried all of the works of this church. That means not just the works of the members of that church, but the works of the elders, the officers, anybody who was a part of this church, all their administrations, all of their worship, all of their ordinances, all of their responsibilities and duties before God, all of their services of love to one another, which were commanded. We learned a little bit about that on Sunday, how we are to love one another. And this is an alarming find. He says, in everything about you, I don't find what I want to find. I find your works are lukewarm. He finds the elders and the members of this church to be lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Now, this is not a term and a phrase of endearment when he says, I would thou work cold or hot. This is really understand what someone who is cold. Now, think about the, this is what makes this passage so incredibly power among, men, among many other things. He's saying, I would rather you be cold. To be cold means to make no profession of God or godliness. To make no profession of Christ 
to make no profession of the gospel. I would rather you be cold and be void of God than to be lukewarm. Now that stirs the soul. Think about what he's saying. It is worse to be lukewarm than to have no profession at all. You're better off. <laughs> I'd rather you be a non-professor. I'd rather you have no profession of me than to be lukewarm. I would thou work hot. That is, to have a zeal, to have a fire, to be living and growing in grace have your faith building, to be lively, to have fervent acts and exercising godliness. I would that you were rather cold or hot. I'd rather you had make no profession than to be lukewarm. Lukewarmness is not commended. Lukewarmness in any relationship would be frowned upon. If you are lukewarm in your marriage, that should be frowned upon. If, you're, if your life and you're, you're lukewarm towards your, any of your relationships, it's something we don't strive for. And yet he says in the church, this is what I find. Now again, he said, I know your works. That means Christ investigated every single work of that church, everything it was doing. And he said, I can't find anything except lukewarmness. That's all I can find. And because that's all I find, I will spew you out. He gives the explanation, verse 16. He says, so then, because thou art lukewarm. He doesn't say you might be lukewarm. He says, because you are this very thing, you are lukewarm. You're neither cold nor hot. I will spew thee out of my mouth. So then, he says, basically here, he says, because you are lukewarm. Now, lukewarm, again, as we began in the introduction, is a metaphor. And it's the idea of coming out of those hot springs or taking boiling water uh, from a stove. It was very hot at one time, but as it's taken off of the heat source and it's set aside from the fire, it begins to quickly cool. If you've ever boiled water on a stove, you'll notice how quick when you pull that water off of that stove, it is in a raging boil. You pull that off, it only takes a few minutes and that will, it, the boil will settle. And within a few minutes, that water will grow lukewarm. And that's the idea here. Because you're lukewarm, because you are removed from the fire. And again, cold water, of course, is something that had maybe been on fire at once, it maybe had been hot, but as it cold water begins to heat, before it gets hot, it reaches a lukewarm state. So there's a point in time when you're standing by your oven as the or a stove as the boil, water is starting to boil, you can still put your hand in it and it won't bother you. It goes from a cold state to lukewarm, still no problem. That's the idea here. So what is the application here? The application is very clearly that some of the officers and the members of this church of Laodicea had a form of godliness, but as 2 Timothy 3, 5 says, but they didn't have the power of it. To be lukewarm is to have a form of godliness. It's to go through the motions. 
It's to just simply show up when you're supposed to show up. It's to just simply, I hate to use this term, it's simply playing church. It's just simply going through the motions. But there's nothing really being done with zeal. There's nothing being done with fervency. And again, Christ himself says, I would much rather you be, have no profession of faith at all than to, be, than to be cold, to be lukewarm. I'd rather you have nothing than to be lukewarm. I will spew thee out of, out of my mouth. This is an expression which implies that Christ himself is disgusted with the formality and the lukewarmness of a church. Now again, it's often said, as the elders go, so goes the church. Oftentimes the elders of a church are, of course, they quote unquote set the spiritual temperature. It doesn't make man not responsible, other congregational members, they're responsible for their actions as well. But this indictment is not just against one group of people, it's against the whole church. Elders congregation altogether. This lukewarmness, again, playing church, the formality of the church. This is very burdensome to the Lord. Now, not burdensome in the sense that we talk about a burden, but it's burdensome and it is, it is disgusting to him to think that the people that I have set my love upon, that people like this could actually become and put into this state. So there is a great warning here. There's a warning of against lukewarmness. Secondly, Christ, as he deals with this playing church, if we continue to use that expression, had entered in even into their worship of God. Uh, we can go through the motions of worship. I don't think we fully comprehend how incredibly special it is to be able to actually worship together with other believers. Whether it's a small group or a large group, it is an incredibly blessed thing to be able to worship together. But we can go through the motions. We can go through the motions and say, okay, it's time to sing the hymns. It's time to read the scriptures. It's time for the prayer. But all of these things are part of our worship. Worship is not just when the music is being sung or when the pre It's all part of the worship. I shouldn't be lukewarm in any aspect of it. You know, there was, I can remember being, a being when I was a kid, and it seems now, it, it, every day it seems further and further away. I'm, I'm further away now from my childhood than I've ever been, right? It's, and I can remember sitting in church all my life, and I can remember certain parts of the service. Well, that was the, that's the boring part. That's the part that's not so exciting. That's the part that really it doesn't include me. But do you realize one of the most important things we can teach our children is to understand that every part of a service, every part of a time of worship is important. From the time we enter into the doors of this building, and again, it's not the building that makes this place special. It's the people that are within inside these walls who are worshiping together. And there is no boring or unimportant part. 
You know, oftentimes, again, this is not meant to be offensive, but oftentimes when we have somewhere we need to be, maybe it's a show, maybe it's a theater or a movie or a sporting event, we don't want to be late to that. We don't want to miss any part of it. We, we don't want to miss the, we don't want to miss the top of the first. We don't want to miss the first quarter. But sometimes we can look at church and say, look, oh, that's just the part where he prays, or that's just the part where they sing, or that's just a scripture reading. The only part that really matters is as long as I'm there for the preaching. Listen, that is the preeminent part. But all of it is part of the worship. All of it is. Now, we can easily get lukewarm. Uh, we can allow this to come into us, and before we know it, we think we're still hot. But the Lord says, actually, no, you're lukewarm. And that's what he's getting to when we get down here a little bit further. Now, I'll spare you the word picture here of using what spewing out of the mouth is. But there's nothing pleasant about that. This is not uh, the Lord saying, this makes me very uh, blessed. No, he said, this is, this is sickening to me. This is sickening that you would be in this state. And it's so sickening. He said, you, you'd be be I, it would be better if you didn't profess Christ at all than to be lukewarm. Now, my mind has a hard time grasping that. Because I could tell myself, well, lukewarmness, at least I'm here. At least I'm on the membership roll. Lord says, no. I'd rather you be hot or cold. Either be zealous and on fire for God or have no profession at all. But don't be in the middle. Don't be lukewarm. It's loathsome to him. And so we see that the Lord uses this illustration of this shameful spewing out of his mouth. Now, the Lord is indicating here that if this lukewarm state continues, he is showing us that there is a utter rejection at some point of that church. That church will maybe have its candlestick removed. Again, lukewarmness can be found in its formality and hypocrisy. It can be found in its just simply going through the motions, playing church, if you will. Verse 17, we're going line by line tonight. Because thou sayest, he's talking to that church, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. There were two problems this church had. First and foremost, they were rich monetarily. Many of them were. But that's not the main issue. The main issue is, is they thought they were rich spiritually. They thought that all was well. Now we understand that monetary riches in and of themselves are not wrong. It's not money that's evil. It's the love of money. It's the love of money that's rid of it. But there is absolutely positively nothing wrong with a believer having money. That's not the issue. It's the love of money. This love of money, I do think, carried over into their spiritual life, and their spiritual life was being affected that, hey, we're rich spiritually. We must have the favor of God because not only are we rich financially, but look at us. And how do we know that they're saying that? Because he says that you have need of nothing. They're basically saying, we don't need anything. 
We have spiritual riches. We have earthly riches. And isn't it convicting that Jesus says, and you know not that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now he says these are the reasons. Because you say you're rich. Rich in grace, you think. Rich in faith. Rich in good works. But they must not be rich in good works because he says, I know your works and your works are all lukewarm. So the church and the elders and the members ought to be. They boasted that they were these things. They said, we're increased in our goods and our possessions. We have spiritual gifts. We have grace. We have good works. They boasted of their growth. They believed they were increasing spiritually. And the Lord says, you're not increasing spiritually. You're actually lukewarm. What's terrifying about this church to me is the reality that this was happening and they didn't know it. Which tells us that we could be seated here right now and think just like the Laodiceans and say, listen, I'm spiritually rich. I'm doing great. The Lord's not going to spew me out. Our self-evaluation of our spiritual condition oftentimes is clouded by our faulty judgment. We look at our spiritual condition and we don't judge it against God's standard. We judge it against man's standard. People say, this is what you need to be to be holy. This is what you need to be if you're truly a believer. No, we need to be what God's word says we're supposed to be. And sometimes that's very different. So we have this, and notice the, the terms that he uses here. You have need of nothing. They gloried in their appearance. As if we don't need any more spiritual gifts. We don't need any more grace. We certainly don't need to be reproved. We don't need God's admonitions. We don't need God's power anymore. We have all that we need. We don't need reformation. We don't need counsel. We don't need advice. This is where they were. There have been moments in my life personally where I have said, I don't need counsel and I don't need advice. I don't need your reproof. I don't need your admonition. I don't need reformation. And in those moments, I will tell you, I could certainly tell you now looking back, those were moments of lukewarmness. Because the moment I say, I don't need any spiritual counsel, I don't need any spiritual advice, that's a warning sign. Now this happens to preachers a lot because preachers often think, listen, I, I, don't, need to, I don't need to be counseled. I don't need to be ad admonished. That's a danger zone. Because we all need counsel. One of the most dangerous places you could ever be is to have an unteachable spirit. When you become unteachable, you are in a deadly place. When you say, I don't need, I don't need the church anymore. I don't need the church telling me what to do. I don't need God's word telling me what to do. He says, all these things you'd have no need of, and you know not that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Wretched condition. To be that way is to be as if you're without God, without Christ, without grace. 
You think you're fine, but you're actually miserable in your own corruption. Now remember, we know some of the warnings of Scripture. And one of those warnings is what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3, verses 11 through 16. Familiar passage. He says, there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher with their tongues. They have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Even sinners in their corruptions think they're okay. We have this idea that sinners are walking around with an acknowledgement and a knowledge that we're not okay. Most of them think they're fine. I will tell you, and it's hard to say this, hell is filled with people today who thought they were okay. They assume that, listen, I'm a part of a church. I, I, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I've done everything they've asked me to do. And the realities are, is there are some in this church that he talks about at Laodicea. Because he, he does make a very clear reference. He said, those I love, I chasten. Now, do I believe all of the church of Laodicea was converted? No, but I do believe they had a remnant that was and that's who he's speaking to primarily. Poor, blind. Some of them that I think he was speaking to did not have a single ounce of grace. Some were just dark in their understanding. The reference to naked here is not physically naked. It's a reference to in a shameful, polluted condition. Now think about the contrast here. You say you have need of nothing, but what you really are is you do not have an ounce of grace, you're dark in your understanding, and you are standing naked in a shameful, polluted condition, and you say, I have no need of nothing. Is that or is that not the worst condition you can be in to think you're okay? And the Lord says, you're actually exactly the opposite. You're the opposite. How can man's pride so convince them, himself that we are fine when we're not? Verse 18, he gives a very tender request. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. He answers all of those observations. He answers all the observations of miserable, poor, blind, naked, and wretched, and he gives the solution. He says the solution is, I counsel you to buy of me. <clears throat> to buy here is not to pay with money, but it's rather to accept what Christ is offering. The answer to your lukewarmness it's not going to be purchased with your monetary riches, but it's when you accept my counsel. In the very last chapter, 
of the Bible in Revelation 22. It says in verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. This is the same concept. He says, I counsel of you, I counsel you by of me. The spiritual hypocrisy, the depth of the formality in this church, void of truth, true good works. There's a great depth and mystery in the cure that Christ is offering here. Christ is giving. Listen, he doesn't even have to give this counsel. You realize he would be within his boundaries to completely remove that candlestick and spew them out and say, listen, that was your last chance. But in this tenderness, he says, I counsel thee to buy of me. Folks, the deep and the depth of God's grace in that phrase is amazing. He's offering them something that money cannot buy them. He's offering something that nothing they do. His counsel is buy of me. Isaiah 9 verse 6 tells us when prophesying about Christ that he would be wonderful counselor. He's the best counselor you're ever going to hear from. We can buy all of his spiritual quote-unquote, commodities without money. It's not bought with that. It's bought and it's bought without a price. This is the beauty of Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. It says, Everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. And let your soul, listen to this, let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. His counsel is, come unto me. Accept what I offer you. Take it. Freely. <clears throat> now notice, he gives what these commodities, we'll use that term, what these actually are. These commodities are gold tried in the fire, white raiment, and eyesalve. Those are the three commodities. And what a beautiful picture this is. Christ is offering this church, the ministers, the officers, the elders, the members of this church, to, to buy of the gold that's been tried with fire, the white raiment. These are metaphors and they're expressions. What, is it, what does the gold tried by in the fire mean? That's a reference back to 2 Peter 1.1, which talks about our like precious faith. Our faith is compared to that, the gold that's been tried in the fire. What does gold that's been tried in the fire produce? It purifies it. He says, come unto me and be purified. We're to understand that all of God's grace, all of his gifts, the fruits of the Spirit, God the Father gives freely and abundantly to all who are poor in spirit. He's not saying you who have a lot of money can come unto me. Isaiah 55 says, no, 
come without the money. There's nothing, you, there's nothing you can give me to buy these, but you've got to accept of me. White raiment. What an interesting choice of words. That white raiment, notice he uses it, he uses the phrase, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesab that thou mayest see. He's got an answer for every one of their problems. Blind, wretched, naked, poor. The white raiment here is a reference to the robe, I love this, is the robe of Christ's righteousness. You've got the gold that's been purified in the fire. That's your faith. But then you've got this beautiful white raiment. The robe of Christ, his righteousness. The garments of his salvation. We think about garments and we think about robes and we think about the beauty of Christ's righteousness, the whiteness of it, the purity of it. In Isaiah 61.10, The Bible says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. Folks, have you ever stopped long enough to think about the garments Christ has robed you in? The garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. This is what he has in mind here. And then we have the anointing of the eyes that thou mayest see. Of course, that eye salve was meant to open blind eyes, eyes that were diseased, eyes that were, were inflamed and infected. The eye salve is a reference to the Holy Spirit, that it's the Holy Spirit of God where your eyes of understanding can be opened to where you now will see the truth. See, they were, they were void of understanding because they thought they were okay. Come and take of me the commodities of, of himself, Christ says, the gold, the white raiment, and the eye salve. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and, rep- and repent. Christ rebukes and chastens them who he loves. Hebrews teaches us in Hebrews 12, 13 that Christ does this. He reproves us by his word. He corrects us with the rod of correction, but it's done out of his love to our soul. That's why the Bible says don't despise his chastisement. It's the same concept. If you do not discipline your children, this is a harsh statement, but if you do not discipline your children, you don't love them the way you should love them. You should not allow your children to just do whatever they want to do and say, well, you know, I I just want to be friends with them. Listen, you you are on a dangerous path with your children if that's the approach you take. If you love your children, you're going to discipline them. Christ himself says, I chasten. I chasten. Chastening does not seem joyous, Hebrews says. Nobody who's been through the chasing of the Lord while it's happening says, boy, I am sure enjoying this. I wish he would ratchet it up a little bit higher. No. Just like when we were disciplined as children, hopefully you were disciplined in some way, shape, or form. It was not pleasant. But it was meant 
to end in a proper correction and a proper result. Christ says, those that I love, I rebuke, I chase, and I reprove. I correct them. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Repent, sorrow after a godly manner for your sins. Paul writes about sorrow for sin in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 through 10. Repent of your formality. Repent of your hypocrisy. Repent of your lukewarmness. But he uses that phrase, be zealous. That's similar to the word, be hot. It's the same concept. Be zealous, be fervent in spirit. Have a fervent zeal for the glory of God. Have a zeal for the honor of Christ. Have a zeal for the gospel. Have a zeal to be an example unto others. Verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Christ called this church. He's calling all the elders, all the members to consider And this is what I want you to see about this tonight. He's telling them how unwilling he was to leave them or to forsake them or to cast them out. If they would take his counsel, if they would amend their ways, repent of their sins, he would come in. I stand at the door and knock. Now, how does God knock on the door of our heart? He does it through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit knocks on our heart's door. When we read the scriptures, we come under conviction. Listen, I've said this. If you're reading scripture and you come under conviction, whatever you do, don't try to run away from that conviction. Say, listen, I don't like where this has taken me. I'm telling you, this is where conviction is going to come from. You're going to be reading scripture and the spirit of God is going to give you understanding and you're going to see that page, you're going to see that chapter and you're going to say, that's me. That's me. And I know what we're all tempted to do. Let's just close that Bible up and go on to something else because I don't like what I'm reading. Listen, conviction is a wonderful gift of God because that conviction is meant to correct, it's meant to bring us into a proper relationship, and it's meant to keep us from fading into a state of lukewarmness. Christ continues his presence with this church, even though they're lukewarm. Christ knew, and Christ knows, that even some of those within that church, some of the lukewarm ones, were truly converted people. They were his children. He is not going to turn his back on his children. He's not going to turn his back on his elect. He's not going to forsake them. If Christ for one minute could forsake his elect, if he could forsake his people, he would cease to be God. He's standing at the door. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to leave you. But I'm calling you to repent. I'm calling you to leave this lukewarmness. Now notice, here's that familiar phrase. If any man hear my voice, this is the ministry of the word. We've been learning about this even on Sunday morning during our study of Matthew. He who has ears to hear, eyes to see. If you're hearing and you're willing to accept his offers of grace upon his terms. If any man hear, open the door. 
What's the encouragement? I will come into him and I will sup with him and he with me. This is a great encouragement to understand that Christ has this gracious invitation to his people if they will repent. And he promises, I will come in to you. That's our promise of our union with him. But it also promises, we learned this couple weeks during our confession study, that it's the communion we'll have with him. This is a beautiful expression. And sup with him and he with me is the idea here. He will sup, I will sup with him and he will sup with me. Communion. By, I can use the term, supping together, we understand the mutual fellowship between Christ and his people. Beautiful picture. And then finally, these last two verses, verse 21, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. To overcome will I grant to sit with me in my throne. To be with Christ signifies that we have been made one with him. Now we understand that we don't become a king, we don't become a ruler per se, but we also understand that we are, we are ruling with him because of his glory and because of who he is. We are told that his saints will reign in eternity. Now we don't fully understand all of that, but we're also told that they will judge the world of the wicked. And so we know that there is a day coming when we who do overcome, we who are in Christ will sit with him. And as every letter has ended, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Consider that every time the Lord finished one of these letters to every church, he was concerned about them hearing. If you have an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying. I'm fully convinced there are people who have sat, not necessarily in our church, but it has happened, I'm sure, who have sat for decades in churches and have never heard the word. They've never truly heard the word of God. They've heard sounds. They've witnessed and they've watched a worship service. They've watched the hymns being sung. They've maybe even picked the hymn book up and they sang with them. But do you know it's possible for you to pick up that hymn book and sing and sing with absolutely no understanding to just mouth the words. You see, what we do, and it's not because only the hymn book's the right way, you can't put it on a screen. All I'm saying is that when you sing together, we're singing as those who are united in Christ together. It's a unity. We're singing with understanding. We're praying with understanding. We're reading scripture with understanding. Not just words to fill and order a service, but rather this is the real communion we're having with Christ. We ought to be zealous when the first scripture is read. We ought to be zealous when the second scripture is read, when the call to worship is read, when the first hymn is sung, when the sermon is preached, when the closing prayer is spoken. We ought to be zealous in all those things. Oftentimes people say, well, I just want to do something for God. Listen, I love that zealousness. But here's what I've noticed a lot over the years. People are zealous to do something big for God. They're zealous to go conquer the world, go conquer a region. And yet they miss out and they're lukewarm in every other aspect of their Christian life. 
They're the same people that say, listen, church services are just so boring. Listen, if you're in Christ, there's absolutely nothing boring about a church service. You say, well, I just don't like the way you do it. That's fine. But how can we be lukewarm with Christ? But yet, it can happen to us. Well, this will finish out these letters to the churches. And what we're going to introduce next week is John is going to give us another vision. We're going to see another door open. And this door, he describes as a door being opened in heaven. And he's going to hear a voice as a trumpet. And it's going to be speaking with him. And the voice is going to say, come up hither and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. Revelation 4 is a beautiful picture of not only the worship of God, the description of chapter 4 is absolutely astounding how God's throne room is described. The elders surrounding the throne. So we're going to look at that next week as we continue the journey through the book of Revelation. But I do challenge us tonight, again, not trying to manipulate your emotions. It's not about emotions, but I do want you to ask yourself the question tonight, am I in danger of becoming lukewarm? Am I in danger of it? Again, church at Laodicea didn't even know what happened. They thought they were fine. So I hope we'll be challenged by that. Let's finish by singing the hymn. We'll stand and we'll conclude our time tonight. Hymn number 109. This will be to a familiar tune we've, we have sang number, a number of times. Why should I sorrow more? Hymn number 109. Let's stand as we sing. And then we'll close in prayer here in just a moment.